Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is the search for the afterlife. With me is Dr. Raymond Moody, a philosopher and psychologist. He is author of the classic Life After Life, published in 1975. It's now sold well over 20 million copies. It coined the term the near-death experience and literally launched the scientific study of near-death experience. Dr. Moody's other books include The Light Beyond, Reflections on Life After Life, Reunions, Visionary Encounters with Departed Loved Ones, Life After Loss, Glimpses of Eternity, an Investigation into Shared Death Experiences. Coming Back, a psychiatrist explores past life journeys and also an autobiography titled Paranormal, My Life in Search of the Afterlife. This interview is being conducted via the internet, so now I'll switch over to that channel. Welcome, Raymond. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, you're a dear old friend. We've known each other now for over 40 years. 40 years. During that time, I have seen you pioneer an entire new scientific discipline. And you not only pioneered the discipline, you coined the name near-death experience. Well, that's right. I, I did, but I always like to go on and say immediately, Jeffrey, that from my point of view, it was all what I had learned in Plato. And then I, um, I learned I, in 1962 at the age of 18, for the first time I ever realized that anybody took the notion of an afterlife seriously, mm -hmm. was reading Plato's Republic which is really about a near-death experience that Plato describes at the end. The story of air. That's right. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I remember asking my professor, Professor Hammond, about that. And he said, yeah, that these early Greek philosophers studied cases of people who had apparently died and revived. And Plato wrote about this, and so did his rough contemporary Democritus, hmm. the founder of atomic theory, who wrote about these experiences but said, no, it's just the residual biological activity in the body. There's no such thing as a moment of death, he said. And that same form of argument is still carried forward Right to today. Some 2,000 years, almost 2,500 years later, we're That's still right. having the same debate, which shows how elusive this phenomenon is. It is, and elusive not just because of the ephemeral nature of near-death experiences in the sense that, you know, this is not anything we can do to capture it live. We have to wait on the report or the descriptions of the people who who um, come back. And um, so I had known about it as a Greek phenomenon, but in 1965, I was, uh, I guess, 20 years old. I first met Dr. George Ritchie, who I think you probably knew as well. I knew Dr. Was, Ritchie, yes. Yeah. And George uh, told me and many other students about his near-death experience. And so at that moment, I knew as you know, George was just a completely real person, right? Yeah. Just a, a wonderful man. Mm -hmm. And I, I knew immediately that I didn't know whether it was a life after death, but I knew that it was, that it was sincere. Mm -hmm. Then I went on to get my PhD in philosophy and I was a philosophy professor for a few years and began to hear these stories from my students and also from the colleagues where I was teaching at East Carolina University. Then went to medical school in 1972 and began to hear this directly from 
a lot of patients who had had these experiences. So that was my process and uh, coming to terms with these things. And um, Jeffrey, since we last talked, I have really sort of given up in the sense that I can't think of any other thing to say that fits these experiences other than to say, to my astonishment, there is an afterlife. I, the, the case that really brought me around, I don't know if you know about the story of Jeffrey Olson and Dr. Uh, Jeff O'Driscoll. No, but, I don't. Uh, this is really fascinating. And uh, Jeffrey Olson is a wonderful young graphic artist, young to me, he's in his 50s, but um, 20, about 20 years ago, he was in a horrific car crash in which his um, wife was killed instantly, as was one of his children. And he barely survived. He had, his, had to have his leg amputated because of the accident, but had a very profound near-death experience. And eventually, you know, kind of wanting to put this down on paper, and uh, which I encouraged him to do, felt that he really should to share this information with the emergency room doctors who saved his life. And when he did, Dr. Jeffrey O'Driscoll became very solemn and said, well, that night you came into the hospital, I knew you weren't going to die because I talked to your wife in the emergency room. And Dr. O'Driscoll had a profound vision of uh, Jeff Olson's dead wife in the operating room and and when I heard that I, I just gave up I mean you know as I had known all along Jeffy that this is not anything to do with oxygen deprivation to the brain yeah. and and the way I knew that was sometime in December of 72 early 73 one of my own professors of medicine um, I can tell her name now. It, um, her name was Dr. Martha McCraney, and she, before I had gone to medical school, my word about my research was already spreading among the medical faculty, so she uh, took me aside and told me that sometime before, uh, she had had the sad duty of trying to resuscitate her mother unsuccessfully, but she said that she said, Dr. Moody, I want to tell you about some mentation I had when I was resuscitating my mother. I thought that was a very curious turn of phrase. But basically, when her mother was dying, she herself, the doctor, got out of her own body, looked down, saw her mother's now deceased body in her own body beside the bed, became aware of her mother there with her, now in spirit form, as she said and saw her mother recede off into this light where from the light were emerging relatives and friends of her mother's who had already passed away. So that's not anything to do with oxygen deprivation to the brain. If the bystander is having the same experience as the person who's in the dying process and the bystander is not ill or injured, mm -hmm. then it's something else, it's something else going on. Some, something else, uh, it could be a form of telepathy. Could be. Yeah. Or my sort of take on it is that I really have come to think um, that transition into that other state of existence is, um, I think people experience it not as a dreamlike state, but rather as a state of consciousness and existence that is more real than ordinary waking reality. I hear this from people all the time. And Jeffrey, you have a lot of friends, and I have a lot of friends, who are medical doctors who have themselves had these near-death experiences. I, uh, and, and that, too, has brought about a, a change in my thinking about this to the point where, for example, I am absolutely dependent on my exercise every day. It's not a virtue, it's just an addiction, a relentless addiction. I have to get out and 
and moved every day all my life. Okay, so to me, the idea of an injury to my foot is a horrifying idea. Okay, so I ask myself, for example, I have a friend in upstate New York that you really should meet if you haven't met him, Dr. Anthony Chikoria. And Dr. Chikoria is a PhD in physiology and also an MD and an esteemed professor of orthopedic surgery at uh, NYU. Well, in 1994, as I recall, or 96, he was struck in the neck by a bolt of lightning which exited his ankle, hmm. and he had a cardiac arrest. So he got out of his body, went around this. His family was some sort of center for a reunion, I gather, but he was able to describe to his relatives what they were doing while he was seeing them out of his body, even before they learned that he had had the accident. And then, although he had never had any interest, Jeffrey, in the piano, after this, he began to develop an interest in the piano and began to have a dream in which he was playing the same piece recurrently on a stage. And he learned how to tr transcribe music, to transcribe this piece. And now, to make a long story short, in addition to being an esteemed professor of orthopedic surgery, he's a concert pianist. Concert who, pianist. Absolutely. Who assures me, by the way, that this experience was not only just real, but it was the realest thing he had ever experienced in his life. Now, would I, if my foot was injured, go to my friend Tony Shakoria for, yes, I would, right? Or would I go to Evan Alexander if I had a surgery probably like some on my yeah, absolutely, okay. I could say that with so many of my medical friends who've had these experiences who are absolutely convinced based on what they experienced that it was real. So you see, I'm in a sort of practical bind there by my complete trust of their medical judgment, then I wonder I'm not in a position really to deny the reality of what they unanimously agree is, is real. Well, I seem to recall that uh, you have always approached this subject with a skeptical mind. I, I know, for example, uh, we had a conversation mm -hmm. ab about your work in the psychomantium and how yeah. you had a lengthy conversation with, let's call it an apparition for the moment, of, of an ant. Of, yes, of, of yours, your your a grandmother, a grandmother, uh, yes, who appeared. If I recall the story, you spent a couple hours in the psychomantium, but this occurred after in That's a living right. room, and she she appeared to you quite solid, and and yes. you spoke to her for maybe over an hour. A long time. A long time. And then you told me you you consider it purely a, a, a psychological phenomenon, had nothing to do necessarily with the afterlife. Well, it, it's like what my, my idea was more, Jeffrey, that I just couldn't tell, right? I mean, in the sense that, see, you have had more of the scientific background. My first education was in philosophy and I am a really uh, you know the the field that you are in you and I are in exposes us to the uh, cavils of people who falsely call themselves skeptics right and <laughs> yeah. and I am so irritated by that group not because of anything to do with near-death experiences but because I just love teaching ancient Greek philosophy. And so when I get to the skeptics, I have to backtrack and undo the damage of these people who falsely say that they're skeptics. The people who call themselves skeptics are humanists, is that particular name. And humanists who are victims of a, an ideology called scientism, which is the doctrine that the only possible the only rational method for securing the truth and knowledge is scientific method. Mm -hmm. Well, when I taught epistemology back in the 60s and 70s, 
or which is theory of knowledge. I used to curse a couple of days of class. I'd ask my students, what do you think knowledge is? And if you trust me for this much, what you get in a class full of young American kids is, oh, knowledge is science, right? So then we, even if they're fundamentalist religionists, it's like, oh, knowledge is science. So, so then I would get them to articulate it. And finally, finally what they'd come up with is, they'd say, scientific method is the only rational means of securing knowledge. And I say, is that what you think? And they say, yeah. So I'd write that on the board. Scientific method is the only rational means of securing knowledge. Then I would write a, then I'd draw up a rectangle around it. And I'd say, so that's what you like, you say, right? So yeah, yeah. So then I would say, well, how do you know that? Now, if you think about it, there's only two possibilities. Number one, they can say, well, the only scientific method is the only rational means of securing knowledge. And I know that by the scientific method. <laughs> that is reasoning in a circle, right? It's assuming what you set out to prove. On the other hand, if they say, well, scientific method is the only rational means of securing knowledge. And I know that by philosophy or literary theory or history or the law, that's a self-contradiction. So what seems to these humanists to be so revealed truth is once you think about it, it's self-defeating. It doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. But what skeptical inquiry is all about is that it's a systematic technique of avoiding a conclusion. If they had had looked at all at any of the writings of ancient skeptics, they could have seen this for themselves. But what it means is it's a mash. The procedure of the skeptical inquirer is to, if you think about it geometry, geometrically, everybody else is rushing in this direction to get to the conclusion. But the point of the skeptic is to, is to avoid a conclusion. And what that does psychologically, if you think it opens up the side pathways of inquiry with your peripheral vision so you can see possibilities that everybody else missed and go on to the conclusion. And, and it's an ex mind-expanding experience, actually. But what these pseudo-skeptics say, what they say is, oh, I'm a skeptic about near-death experiences. I think it's just the chemistry of the brain. Well, if you unpack what that means is, is I'm a person who doesn't draw conclusions, and my conclusion is such and such. Yeah. See, it's, it's just, and, and, and that shows the general kind of tenor of, it, this really needs to be explored rigorously and systematically. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but I would never try to convince anybody else that there's an afterlife. But to be honest to people, I have to say where I have come is that I just give up. I, you know, when the doctors start telling me, yeah, I participated in the patient's near-death experience and I talked to the patient's dead wife, I give up. I give up. Well, and, let, and, let me come back, if I may, to the uh, encounter you had with... Uh, I'll call it an apparition of, mm -hmm. of your grandmother. Uh, do you believe now that this was a, a an authentic uh, communication with your deceased grandmother? Well, I have to say that in 1991 or two, I guess it was, I saw my grandmother right in front of me who had died some years before. Who I heard her voice. I felt her presence. She told me things that I hadn't known about my childhood, but really it makes sense. It made a lot of stuff altogether. But it's the reason I have to say, Jeffrey, is that as a person who, you know, my background was in logic. I was a professor of logic and, and uh, philosophy of language and ancient Greek philosophy. And that's the point of view that I bring to those things. And in that situation, 
I just don't have any logical equipment that may, and see what I'm talking about? Yeah. It's just that, um, and I am not even sure that I want there to be an afterlife. I have said, well, there is. And so once I sort of came to that point of view that there is, then I started having to think about, uh, is that what I want there to be? And, you know, we had a dear Milton friend, Milton Friedman, the yes. best friend I ever had in my life. 30 years, I dearly loved Milton. And Milton and I were having this conversation before he died that these things were building up to the point where you really can't think your way out of this very well. And so Milton, I remember one day when we were thinking about this, he said, I hope not. You know, he didn't want there to be an afterlife. And, you know, he was in the Normandy invasion. So, you know, I mean... He had a tough road to hoe in his life, and and but I kind of got to agree with Milton. I'm not so sure I want there to be, but what I, I give up, there is. Mm-hmm. See what I'm talking about? But what is more important to me than anything else on this is not just the observation, but more that I think that I have solved the primary problem which holds back genuine rational inquiry into the afterlife. And that was stated very beautifully by David Hume, Jeffrey. Mm. And, and, it's, and I don't believe this because Hume says it. I believe it because it's just once you think it through, he's right. He said, by the mere light of reason, it seems difficult to prove the immortality of the soul. And that is an understatement. But he went on to say, some new species of logic is required for that purpose and some new faculties of the mind that they may enable us to comprehend that logic. And that is the real deal, which not just philosophers, but sometimes thoughtful, analytic people in ordinary life come up with too. It's like for years, when I get to a party, somebody oh, knew, knew me from reputation. It's like, oh, then they say, a certain number of them say, oh, uh, I don't believe in life after death. When you're dead, they're dead. When you're dead, you're dead. And then I get really curious, well, what brings you to that? And then when I ask them how, what makes you think that, all kinds of reasons, some psychological, oh, it's wishful thinking, others religious, my religion says this, you know, but a certain percentage of them say, well, what are you talking about in the first place, life after death? Isn't that a self-contradiction? And that really what it, what it boils down to on a logical basis is that it is self-contradictory even to say that there's life after death and that the other common phrases don't have a clear-cut meaning either. So as the great logical positivist we remember from college, right, mm-hmm. said it's all about verification. If there's no verification possible, then the sentence, as much as it may touch us and fill us with images, that the sentence, there is life after death, is um, doesn't convey any real meaning. Now, I acknowledge all that, but what I have done is, I see the exciting part of Hume's dictum. To me, what that means is, hey, this is it, rational inquiry into the afterlife isn't going to work with the logic that we, that we have and the mind that we have, right? And Hume was implying, therefore, it's just not possible. But I say, oh, it absolutely is possible. And and what I claim is that I have worked out a system of logic and a, a new set of rational principles, and you know about this, you've seen this develop for years, where we can now actually think in a genuinely rational and logical way about life after death. And we can prepare ourselves to articulate the near-death experiences more clearly when they occur. And that's where I claim this is going, that we now have means actually to 
adapt our mind to the problem, to have to remodel our mind to actually be able to think logically about this biggest of all questions of existence. Well, well, you have pioneered, I would call it, a whole new area of logic itself, looking at the rules that pertain to, I think, is more than 80 different types of what we commonly call nonsense. That's right. And you know, it's, I, Jeffrey, I want to know what you think about this, because I claim that there is a kind of hidden cognitive glitch, which is called, caused by the fact that people, number one, love nonsense. Dr. Seuss's books have sold, Jeffrey, over 600 million copies all over the world, or you think Lewis Carroll, or playground rhymes when we're kids. One bright day in the middle of the night, two dead boys got up to fight. Back to back, they faced each other. Nursery rhymes, uh, doo-wop music of people of our age, the mixture of sha na 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 nonsense syllables with meaningful parts like... Uh, Get a job, which is the formula actually of shaman songs, which were used to propel the shaman over to the other side. So we love nonsense, but we don't like the word nonsense. So what happens is people have a little cognitive glitch. And when we try to think logically about things that don't make sense, we try to apply the rules of literal logic to it and our minds go berserk. But all we have to do is, <clears throat> nonsense is a whole rich dimension of language and the mind that has its own structure. When I went to medical school, I had been studying nonsense for many years, and I knew all these different patterns. And you quickly realize in medical schools that, that patients, for example, who are delirious or psychotic or stressed out or... Uh, intoxicated with mercury or various kinds of things will talk nonsense, but they don't know they're doing it. And so what I found was that when psychotic or delirious or intoxicated patients talked nonsense involuntarily, the nonsense they talked with the same types of nonsense that uh, Lewis Carroll and Dr. Seuss and Edward Lear and many other great nonsense writers wrote. And it's really startling once you see that, so that um, there's this frame of language that participates deeply in our lives. You think of the role of nonsense and song, for example, Ella Fitzgerald and um, uh, Satchmo, uh, Louis Armstrong. And, uh, you know, it's nonsense. I, I would play, though, when I was a professor at uh, East Carolina University, I used to bring in a portable record player with 45 records, 45 RPM records, like doo-wop songs and Ella Fitzgerald. And Ella Fitzgerald had one called uh, Flying Home. And all it is is nonsense syllables. It's scat singing, right? And so I'd play that, and the students, I, what, I would get reactions. Some people would say, well, I heard her say, we went down to the train station, but I didn't make the re- I didn't make sense of the rest of it. So another student sitting next to me, well, I didn't hear her, uh, hear her say that, but I heard her say, that red rose is bright today. So everybody had their own... Uh, and, and they, the students would be startled at this phenomenon. So it's a really wonderful uh, uh, dimension of life. That uh, And by altering our minds, by learning how nonsense works, we can actually have an entirely new insight into this biggest question of existence, whether there is life after death. You seem to be implying that uh, if there is an afterlife, it operates on rules that are so different from what we experience here in the in the physical world that we experience through our external senses that it would seem nonsensical. So if we study nonsense, we can come to an appreciation of what what the afterlife could be like. 
Exactly, exactly, exactly. And it's all in your mind anyway. It, for example, see the idea, for example, that there's 70 different or 80 different types of nonsense is so counterintuitive, right? <laughs> like, what is he talking about? But listen to this. Here are three types right here. Twas brilliant and the slithy toes did Gyron Gimble in the wave. Well, that's nonsense. But you can hear that it's different from this nonsense. Holiness breeds the vestigial lipstick of spontaneity. And you can also tell that both of these, those, are different from this third type of nonsense. That cannibal you man just ate was the last one in this county. <laughs> See? Or... We can go on and on. But these, um, and in science, Jeffrey, nonsense holds the role of a placeholder. That is, it's something we hold on to in the expectation that eventually we will get enlightenment on it. Um, Well, let me give you an example. What nonsense is, is nonsense is language that is unintelligible, doesn't convey anything to the mind, because it it is meaningless. And so um, uh, the, the fact that, uh, that because of that, it plays a role in science as an intermediary. Let, for example, right now, Think, uh, go back in your mind to the to the situation of a very well-educated person of the year 1915, okay? And so listen to these three sentences. First sentence, all four of Ethel's grandparents perished and were lost in a shipwreck long before her mother and father were born. In 1915, that's unintelligible, right? Now, add the intermediate knowledge of the DNA role in genetics, the uh, uh, gene editing, cloning, and so on. And we can imagine a scenario where there's a probe down to the wreckage and the DNA is retrieved and all. But see, in 1915, no sense at all. In in, uh, 2019, it does convey a sense. Or go back to 1915 and listen to this and this one, two women got married at City Hall yesterday. See, uh, married to each other at City Hall yesterday. No sense at all. Into it. But and also listen to this one. 1915. I watched a movie on my phone today. See, <laughs> unintelligible. So unintelligibility itself, it, nonsense, can eventually be transformed into truth by the right kind of rational inquiry. And I think that's where we're on the way now with uh, the question of life after death. Mm-hmm. I've often mm-hmm. puzzled over whether a, a physical afterlife could exist in in what mathematicians call hyperspace and physicists yeah. call hyperspace. Yeah, like um, geometry is... Um, you know, it's so interesting to read back, like, to the rationalists, yeah. where they were they were so optimistic that if you could just get it into a Euclidean framework, that everything would be all right, right? Because in the early 1600s, they only had two systems that were secure knowledge, because the, oh, the church authority had broke down and people didn't take St. Thomas seriously anymore. So what were they going to do, people like Descartes? Well, they knew that the Euclidean geometry and the algebra, for example, were that was solid knowledge. So they tried to put everything else into this framework of a deductive system because that was the ideal of knowledge. Then various kinds of things happened. One was that Einstein proved that it wasn't the the Euclidean geometry that was true of the world, but rather the Riemannian geometry. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and then Gödel, in about 1939, I think it was, proved that in any deductive system that is consistent, that is that you can't con- 
can't do a proposition and it's contradictory within that system, then it is necessarily incomplete, which means that there's always going to be some statements that seem true within the system, but which you just can't prove or disprove. And and that may be exactly the ontological status of the afterlife. I think it is. I think it is. It's um, Jeffrey. I've become. I never studied Hinduism, but I went down to that place that Maryland goes to in the Bahamas down there. I've been there. And, yeah, Paradise been there. Island. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And um, so I was talking about what I've come to think, and that's the the hen the. Swami down there said, yeah, that's what the Hindu thinks. And what I think it is, is that this is story. What is your personal identity but your story, right? And that that what that's going on with you and me now is that we're watching these stories. And then when you die, you go through some incomprehensible process. And then you're back on another story. I woke up one morning, November of about five or six years ago, when I was thinking about all this stuff, with a, with a sentence from um, uh, uh, Ellie Wiesel at my head. Mm-hmm. And it, it was from one of his books. He said, God made man because he loves stories. And, you know, I think that is what your personal identity is, is your story. And then in your your life review, time stands still, and you go you go 180 degrees around, and you re-witness the same actions that you did from the point of view of the other characters. So you see, we are necessarily bound up in my life review. I'm going to be seeing things through your eyes, the things that we interacted in, and you'll see the same things through my eyes. So we are really kind of all one person. Well, you're in agreement with the um, perennial philosophy of the mystics. That's right. That's right. It's, uh, the older you get, the more clear it becomes, I guess. Eh? Well, Conscious. I, I I can't say that I am quite as certain about it, <laughs> but uh, I, I uh, tend to try to keep uh, a, an open mind about about all things, including the possibility that we could someday actually nail this down scientifically. Yes. That's what I think too, and I think it has to go through a conceptual phase first. It's just like uh, before something can become a science. It has to go through a sort of conceptual revolution, right? Like before Galileo, it it was Aristotle was the authority just from his armchair observation and his philosophical principles. But Galileo said, well, no, let's set up some inclined planes parallel to each other and see if the bowling balls go down at the same rate or different. And they didn't. You know, I mean, they they did. So it didn't matter then what Aristotle said. Yeah. I mean, you know. Aristotle said a heavier object will fall faster. Faster. And that's Galileo right. showed experimentally that's not the case. That's right. Mm-hmm. I was reading the all things the other night, Jeffrey. I was reading Ptolemy. You oh. know, I have Ptolemy was the ancient Greek expert in in astronomy and. I was reading the first of Ptolemy, and it says, and it was just this, you know, absolute certainty that he says that all of our observations, and he gave a bunch of them, show conclusively that the Earth is in the center of the universe. Yeah. And, you know, with such complete certainty. And um, yeah, so I it, always figured that I don't. I'm as not long as you accept true. that the planets move in little loop-de-loops. That's right. That's <laughs> right. And uh, <laughs> the epicycles. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> well, I suppose it's reasonable to think that in our age, with our so-called sophistication and uh, vast scientific knowledge and an enormous power. Uh, 
that we are probably making some of the very same conceptual errors as Ptolemy did as a culture. Oh, yes. Yes, yes. And one of them is, uh, and I really, eventually, Jeffrey, this will, I think, will all, everybody will agree to this, that one of them is that an error that was introduced by Aristotle, when that Plato, as you probably recall, was the person who first distinguished clearly between the literate, literal, and the figurative, and who defined the concept of falsehood. They had the concept of truth already from Parmenides, but um, Plato went, along to, went on to define precisely the concept of falsehood. And, um, but he, in a separate dialogue, had been trying to figure out the logic of things that don't make sense. Like the, he had a whole dialogue that is largely about nonsense. It's called the Parmenides, where he was trying to work all this out. But Aristotle, his pupil, was the kind of person who was so horrified by anything that seemed to smack of irrationality that he abandoned that. Aristotle's favorite word for nonsense was, as I recall from my professor in 1964 or 5, saying that Aristotle's favorite word for nonsense was random talk. Well, Plato had already shown that nonsense is not just, it's not random talk. Nonsense, paradoxically, is, is less random than ordinary meaningful language for a complex reason that it is. But so what that left us with is that when we try to figure out propositions that really literally don't make any sense, we try to apply the logic of literal language to it and our minds go berserk. And so what I have done is I've introduced some additional principles that come into play when we have sentences that may appear to be, that may be grammatical, but that don't make any literal sense. So now we can process this as well. Well, your colleague, uh, whom I interviewed recently, Lisa Smart, yeah. ha has really taken this to another level by examining the speech patterns linguistically of people who are dying. And, and she That's shows right. that they're using just this kind of nonsense, which, as you point out, is actually more complex than normal language, which, which yeah. would, suggest that those skeptics who say that the speech of dying people is uh, the product of a brain that's deteriorating because it's dying, uh, that's not consistent with more complex speech. No, that was uh, because I was known already for my interest in death and dying. As soon as I got into medical school, my my uh, attending, my attending physicians would always hook me up with the terminally ill patients. So I learned a lot about the dying process. And one thing that struck me from the very beginning is that in the last few days or weeks or hours of life, people will start lapse into this very enigmatic language, which is nonsensical and so on. And uh, and I realized that. What the people left behind will say is um, a professor of religious studies out at Brigham Young told me these very words years ago. Her, her, her husband had been a philosophy professor and she was a professor of religious studies. But she said that as her husband was dying, he started talking nonsense. And she said, she said, I knew even then that it was nonsense. But she said, in the back of my mind somehow, I thought I, I kind of understand it. And that's what people will say. It's very touching. So I think now we have a system of principles that are going to enable us to analyze the structure of um, the language of the dying. Now, if you were a literary critic... Uh, you might say that, you know, the highest form of language is poetry, which from the, the point of, uh, view of a logician could be viewed as logic. I'm sorry, as nonsense. Yes, indeed. And, um, that is, is a very significant 
point in the history of philosophy, uh, Jeffrey, because my favorite book, as it's turned out in my life, was Plato's Phaedo, which I read in October or November of 62. I was just a little bit over 18 years old. And that book has stayed with me and, and lasted throughout my just it's an amazing piece of work and it's about the execution of Socrates the day he was executed and so when his friends go into the prison the first thing he said they ask him is Socrates what's this we've heard about you becoming a songwriter in prison and the point of this was that Socrates had always dismissed entertainment and music as something frivolous but now in his last days He's fancying himself a songwriter. And so maybe he's slipping, right? But he says, oh, no, I'm doing this in obedience to dreams and visions that tell me to pursue music. And then he goes on to compare himself. The Greeks had a, a folk belief that just before swans die, they sing the most beautiful songs of all. So Socrates compared himself to that. Well, I was very impressed by that scene, as I'm sure anybody who ever read that book was. But 12 years later, 1974, I was doing my uh, surgery rotation in medical school. And on a 70-something-year-old woman who had a cardiac arrest right in front of us, and I started the resuscitation, but as she was dying... She uh, was reciting poetry, I mean, the meter and the rhyme. And, and subsequently, just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. I mean, people who, some people, somebody who's listening to this right now, Jeffrey, knows some case of an aunt or an uncle or a brother or a father who had never had any interest in poetry, but just in those last few days or hours began reciting poetry. It's, and there is a whole wonderful tradition in Japan, of death poetry, like poets would be primed to, you know, to wait until their dying day and on their deathbed they would com compose a death poem. So these are very close uh, thing matches in the psychological and spiritual domain of human humanity. I think. Mm -hmm. I know uh, a lot of. Um popular music, uh, when it refers to death, they often suggest, you know, I will come back as a cloud, or uh, you'll see me when a feather drops from the sky. Or, That's right. uh, there, all kinds of metaphors suggest the idea the the soul's just sort of blending into nature, but still there somehow. Yes. It's very puzzling to me to see it's like um, I... I am sick and tired, Jeffrey, of Raymond Moody. And you may know what I mean. I mean, it's, I think that's a natural thing in life. I'm just sick of ego. You know, I mean, I, I got, got rid of my ego, not from any virtuous spiritual quest, but from just about killing myself with it. My specific one was jealousy. And I kind of think that one ego trip is enough, right? But my jealousy. <laughs> But, you know, what you learn is that ego equals pain, right? And to me, the idea of being Raymond Moody for eternity, no, 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 help me, help me. <laughs> so, I mean, and I think that there's a better plan than, than, you know, just being me forever. Well, I, I uh, think it's, it's pretty clear to me that when the physical body dies, uh, th that person is, is is dead Raymond Moody will die that's but right that's right Jeffrey Mishlov will die surely and won't and Jeffrey Mishlov is not going to be reborn but this that's center right. of awareness yes. may continue yes. that's right that's right and I have asked I asked Evan recently for Evan Alexander recently for example it's like try to tell me what your what is the change in your personal identity in that situation, right? Well, what people tend to say, Jeffrey, is that, like you're saying, that the the Raymond Moody identity, the Jeffrey Mishra identity, that's dropped. 
but that your personal identity becomes even deeper and richer. Mm -hmm. And see, I just can't imagine what that's like, but I accept. I mean, that's what people tell me, that it's like coming out of Plato's cave, right? People say that. Um, I hear people all the time, all over the world, say something equivalent to, I have never been so alive as when I heard that doctor say I was dead. <laughs> people say that it's not like you're slipping into a dreamlike state when you're dying. It's like you're waking up to this bigger reality. And it's like in the morning when you're coming out of a dream, you have that feeling that you're coming back to reality. Well, that's what people say about dying, that it's like they accept that this is the dream mm -hmm. that you you wake up out of the dream of life into this other kind of timeless and spaceless frame of existence that is apparently infused with love and knowledge. Yeah. Well, I sometimes think of it like uh, when you walk out of a movie theater. You've been in yes. the movie for two hours and now you're back to real life. That's right. Uh-huh. And it's a very apropos image in the sense that you may go into the movie and sit there for two years. Well, in the in the movie time, ten years has elapsed, right? You see the action of, but the time is compressed into that uh, framework. And that's and gosh, I've had a few cases too, Jeffrey, of people who tell me, and this is like one of these was a major executive at a major five. Fortune 500 company, company, all right, who came out of the executive suite for a moment to tell me that when she was 18 years old, she had a near-death experience in which she fast-forwarded, met a guy, married, had three kids, and then was pulled back to her 18-year-old self and was trying to tell the doctors and nurses, I can't be in here. I got three kids and a husband, right? So then she quickly learned not to talk about that, right? <laughs> and until years later, she encountered a philosophy professor who she said, well, maybe this guy will listen to this. And so then he said, oh, you should read Raymond Moody's book. And that was the connection. But in her life, she said it happened just like it's in the flesh forward. And she had two kids, and then the, the second kid was, it was a hard pregnancy. So she, her husband said, please get your teeth out. No, no, we're going to have another kid, which came about. And uh, so life is, is very weird, Jeffrey, and we can't really describe it with the logical system. And the ideas that we have from within this frame of reference. Yeah. Well, I know um, in the past you and I have mm -hmm. had some discussions about parapsychology in general and this same mm -hmm. conundrum that pertains to the afterlife. Uh, I, I believe you've applied it to the whole field of parapsychology. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, to me. I think of it since I came from a philosophical point of view rather than a scientific one. Yeah. I say I look at it differently. That to me, it's like it's possible in the future. It can be a scientific question, mm. but I think the pro the barrier problem is the is the conceptual. It's like, what are we talking about when we say always after death? Right? That's the, you know, it's, it's A.J. Ayer said famously, it said, you know, it makes sense in our language to say that a man survived a complete change of personality or a complete loss of memory. But he said to say that a man survives the death of his body is just self-contradictory. And, you know, there is a certain, I mean, and he, he's absolutely right in terms of this realm that we're in. Yeah. But that's not a sign for despair. That means that we need to get busy flipping our mind over to a more inclusive state mm -hmm. of uh, perception and, and yeah. We, well, you, you know, you may not know this. Martin Gardner, who who is now deceased, but for yes. many years was a very famous skeptic, 
Yeah. Uh, well, he called himself a skeptic. We could debate whether he was a real skeptic That's right. or, That's right. or, or not. Uh, more of a scoffer, I suppose, than a skeptic. That's right. But he That's wrote right. this fascinating essay, um, in an obscure book that I happen to own called The Wise of a Philosophical Scrivener. And the title of the essay is Why I Believe, uh, an Afterlife is Possible. And, and he argued that all you need is higher dimensions of space and, and That's right. then, you know, dropping the physical body would be like a snake shedding its skin. There would be, uh, something that remains in other dimensions that are invisible to our normal senses. That's right. I think that's what it is that when it boils down to a question of, uh, cross dimensional, um, experience this is what it it, it involves is um, uh, what is it like to experience a change of dimension and that's a very difficult one to put together because we don't have the language for it Mm -hmm. and you know in the literary tradition Jeffrey it's always nonsense right that it's there right like you think of the uh, comic books we read when we were a kid right and the that to get from one dimension to another, the hero says, and then he's in another. So non- magical nonsense is often. Abracadabra. That's right. Uh-huh. Exactly. Right. Hocus pocus. <laughs> Hocus pocus. A lot of those. And all over the world, this is really fascinating, those magic words, which are intentional nonsense, but they look foreign. Mm-hmm. Whatever language you hear them in, they sound foreign to you. And that was pointed out by Lucian of Samosota in you know, the hundred, you know, at, around 120 was when he died, I think. Mm-hmm. But but he um, he pointed that out that it's the the nonsense formulas that the, the evokers of the dead used that the oracles of the dead to call up the spirits of the dead were these uh, unintelligible, meaningless, polysyllabic words, he said, that sound foreign. Yeah. Well, you've written about uh, so many different aspects of survival. You've written about near-death experience, shared death experience. I know you have a book out on reincarnation. You have a book about the uh, psychomantium and the uh, uh, idea of uh, communication with the deceased. All, All of these different aspects seem to be like arrows pointing toward uh, the existence of an afterlife, even if it's not conclusive. There's an awful, awful lot of evidence which is strongly suggestive. I would say yes, yes, that there is so much out there that what is needed is not... What is needed is a conceptual revolution, Mm -hmm. Jeffrey. And I claim that I have made that conceptual revolution. Now, I'm saying that not to pat myself on on the back or propound an ideology, but rather to issue a challenge. This this book is going to be published by Llewellyn Publishers soon, by the way. It's called Making Sense of Nonsense. And the subtitle is something like How Unintelligible Languages enables us to understand transcendent experiences. And and I presume that this will be like an official trade publication of of the manuscript you've been working on uh, that we talked about 10 years ago. I have a copy, The Wisdom of Nonsense. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And it's now being published. And I'm just issuing that challenge. I claim that what I say in there is valid. It holds up logically. And what it means is that we can actually change our, we can actually expand our mind and our logic in a way that actually enables us to grapple realistically and I would say rigorously, rigorously with the question of life after death. Well, you, you've made a strong claim and I, you want to encourage our viewers to look into yes. it because I think you're onto something, Raymond. I do too. I do too. It's, yeah. um, 
I think we can actually reformat our minds in advance so that when we have near-death experiences by chance subsequently, then we can come back and articulate them in an entirely new way. Well, Dr. Raymond Moody, what a pleasure to have this conversation. What a pleasure to be with you, Jeffrey, as always. Well, let, let's do it again. Well, we let's can, do it. <laughs> we can take this a little further in the, in the future, but I'm very okay. delighted that we're connecting and we've laid out this foundation. Thank you so much for being with me. Thank you so much. And I just really appreciate my friend Lisa Smart, too, who was on. We're together in the University of Heaven, as you know. We're doing courses through the Internet on this. So thank you, Jeffrey. It's just so good to see you. Yeah, my my pleasure, Raymond. Thank you.